we're going to start out with our recap from last week. So we did the beginning of Philippians 4 last week. This week, we're going to finish Philippians. So this will be the third book that we've gone through since we started doing this study, which I think is pretty cool. And I was really encouraged by it until, like, I think I was studying Wednesday or Thursday night, and I pulled up the beginning of Galatians and then the end of Philippians in the Bible and held it up, and it was like this much of this book. And I showed Carol, I was like, look, it's been a year and a half, and we've done this so far. So at the rate we're going, um, if we keep doing this for the next 40 years, somebody's going to have to definitely take over for me because I'll be dead before we get through the entire Bible. We are moving slow. But deliberate, I think, is important and we're trying to cover as much as we can and what's important to us. In the last couple of weeks have had some really good things. So let's look back at last week. Um, when we started chapter four, it starts with this exhortation from Paul to his friends, right? Uh, in Philippi and he calls them his joy and his crown. And we talked about what that crown looks like. It's like winning a prize. So he's saying like, your guys are my prize, right? And reminding them to stand firm in the Lord. Paul deals with some church disorder at the beginning of this, which he hasn't done a lot in Philippians because it's a book about joy. And he's been exhorting them. He's been lifting them up. But he does deal with this just a little bit here um, where he takes care of a disagreement in the church. Remember these two ladies um, are uh, Udi and Syntyche. They're getting after each other somehow. There's some disagreement in the church. And he's like, hey, we need to take care of this. So he addresses it. He calls them out by name in the letter and says, we're going to deal with this right now, right? And it's important to Paul that we're of one mind and one body in the church. And then when we have a disagreement, um, we come together as people in the church and we fix those problems. We don't let them dwell in the church. We don't let them cause strife in the church. We don't let, you know, little pockets of resistance rise up inside of it. And that's, um, you know, we come together in the word of God is our guide every single time. And our goal is to deal with church squabbling, at, you know, at the adult level, in the godly level, and make sure that none of those things happen. So my encouragement from last week was, if there's ever anything that we study or anything that I go over that you disagree with, you just come to me. Just come to me and we'll talk about it and we'll discuss whether or not it's an interpretive issue or it's a, just a disagreement about style or disagreement about the way we do things and we'll come together and we will address it and we'll talk about whether it's biblical or not and if we can't come to terms on it we'll get a couple people together it's godly that way and we'll pray about it because what we don't want is for dissent to happen in an ungodly manner right because we're people and that's what we do we dissent and we disagree and we argue because we're sinful and we're going to try not to have that happen so anyway next paul goes into a lesson he talks about rejoicing again, prayer, supplication, thanksgiving, and everything that we do. We talked about that, making our requests known to God. And he tells us that through prayer, that the peace that surpasses all understanding will guard our hearts and our minds in Jesus Christ. So very important thing that we always remember to stay in prayer and supplication, making our prayers known to God in all things, right? In all things, the little things and the big things. Um, I'm reminded yesterday, Carol was showing me some social media feed, uh, some posts, some people who are in our extended circle are in where people are giving God the glory for things in their life that are, <laughs> I would say, kind of outside of the purview of the gut things that God is trying to help us to understand about his creation and about his son, Jesus. Not that God is not involved in all the little things. But your tea time 
is probably not something that's high on God's list. And if you're publicly putting out that you prayed for something specific to happen at a specific time, and it correlates precisely to you getting a tea time at an event, I think maybe when you go to church, your pastor or your group that you're in needs to redirect you in what prayer and supplication looks like because it's, your tea time is, is not why Christ died on the cross. So anyway... Anyway, still, we bring everything to him with the expectation that he is all-powerful and all-knowing and that he cares for us and wants the best for us. Not always here, right? Sometimes he lets us go through some junk here. When he wants the best for us, it means he's prepared a place for us in heaven, which means sometimes we just go through some stuff. Anyway, we finished last week by discussing that the practice of things that are true, so we practice things that are true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, excellent and worthy of praise are what we should be striving for in our lives. We should always be striving for what is good, what is holy. We, this is the actual practice of being a believer. We can say it. We can say we believe. We can say that we love him because he first loved us. But does it show that we actually do it if we're just not striving? Because when the Holy Spirit dwells inside of us and we're a new creation, we have a desire to be holy. We have a desire to strive for him, right? I'm not saying we always do it right. Just saying that should be our heart's desire is to want to be better. It's to want to be a better husband. It's to want to be a better spouse, a better parent, a better neighbor, all these things. For people to see us as different. And then he tells us that the practice of these things will bring us God's peace, right? And this is where we correlate it to joy. And that's been what our message has been for the last couple months is joy. And that joy being different than happiness. Happiness is when something happens. Joy is eternal. So let's read Philippians 4. Turn, if you will, or if you have it on your phone. Philippians 4. We're going to do verses 10 all the way through verse 23. This will be the longest block of verses that we've done probably to date. That we get lucky in this, we have his final greetings in it, which is very simple. But we'll uh, finish out Philippians today, starting Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 10. Paul writes this. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble, and you Philippians yourself know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia... No church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except only you. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God, 
And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. And then we'll see here that Paul gives his closing to the letter when he says, Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So this section starts out with joy. This is our theme. And Paul kicks off this section with joy here. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord gladly, right? He rejoices in the Lord for the Philippians concerned. The Philippians are concerned for him. This is why they've sent Epaphroditus. This is why they're sharing their money with him. And it's what he reveals here is this isn't the first time that he's done that. They've obviously supported his mission before in the past, right? Um, it's an interesting kind of prayer to be thankful to God for the people in our lives that support and love us. Feels like something we should be doing naturally, normally. Be prayerful for the people that are around you, the people that love you. We often take that for granted. When we're of one mind and of one body, it's easy to kind of become complacent in. These people around me love me, and I care for them, and I'm going to lift them up to God, right? It's a reminder to always be thankful, joyful, and prayerful to those around us who do lift us up in all things, in our life, our family, people who support us. In this case, Paul's specifically thankful for one of the bigger stress points of the church, money, <laughs> right? And we know this goes in two directions. This is the, I'm stingy with my money and I don't want to share it with the church type of people. And then there's the completely other side of the coin where we've got these prosperity gospel churches who are telling people that they need to sow a seed and you're going to give your money to the church and it's going to grow. But that guy's in a private plane while you've given all your money away. So there's kind of both ends of the spectrum here. But what Paul is drilling down on is, I'm thankful for you for sending your money to me to support me where I am, right? And he's specifically thankful for this money that was sent to him from the church in Philippi, from that church that he's addressing here specifically. And the concern that Paul is speaking out when he talks about this, like, I'm you know, thankful for your concern for me, is the monetary donation that they sent him while he was in prison and while he was in Thessalonica. This was a monetary gift, not a tithe. And we're going to talk about this a little bit, right? The difference between what a tithe looks like and what a monetary gift looks like. This was the church, probably elders, I would assume, because they were doing things right, because Paul's exhorting them, saying, Paul's in prison, we love Paul, gather some dough, get it together, and let's send it to him. Because we've talked about this, why? Who was paying for Paul's imprisonment? Paul, right? He's paying rent for his own prison cell, which was probably house arrest while he was there. Had to pay for his own food, had to pay for his goods, whatever he needed. Uh, if he was going to write letters, maybe a scribe. Um, so there were expenses that he had and they are giving to him while he is there, right? So it's a monetary gift. And as we creep a little closer to this famous verse, uh, we're going to drill, drill in on this because this is this is one that, as I read it again, you, you may see what I'm going to get into here. Um, there's tattoos on believers, and I already got in trouble for this once already. I said something about it. Somebody had a tattoo. Or somebody had it written on their wall. I can't remember. It was, anyway, so people have it written on their kitchen walls. There's T-shirts and bumper stickers. And the verse is usually taken completely out of context and typically to support some sort of prosperity in the gospel and that is right i can do all things through him who strengthens me 
Okay, so if, if we just take that verse by itself, it sounds really amazing. I can do all things through him that strengthens me. I would contend you can't do all things through him through strengthens me. One, because when you say it all by itself, it's grossly out of context. What does it mean, all things? Well, you can't do all things. There are mountains that you can't move. There are things you can't lift. There are things you can't change because you are not God, right? So it has to be taken in the context that it's written in. But Paul says this in a letter after telling them about the adversity of the Christian life, specifically his adversity, right? So he's talking to them about um, how he's been brought low and how he's abounded. He's, been, he's talked about his hunger and then having plenty. And he is specifically here talking about his contentment in the Lord when he says he can do all things. I want to read um, this, the way that the NASB, because I read it out of the ESV this morning, I just want to read how it says here with this translation because I like the way it was worded. It says, I know how to get along with humble means. And I know how to live in prosperity. So look at the juxtaposition. I know how to live without anything. And I know how to live with abundance. I know how to live in both. In any and in every circumstance, I have learned the secret, the secret of being filled, completely full, and being hungry. Both of having abundance and suffering need. Not just being needy, but being so needy that you're suffering for it. And the word that Paul uses for abundance here is a measurement of having more than you could possibly need, right? So this isn't just having a lot. This is like, Paul is like, I know what it's like to have so much that it is overflowing and I can't possibly get any more in the house. There's so much food I can't eat at all. There's so much money I can't spend at all. I know the difference between that and I know the difference between suffering. What he says here, this translation of suffering is like being left behind in a race or being inferior. So when you look at the translation, we look at the measurement of more than you could need or the measurement of being left behind in a race. Like everybody's gone already. There's no way to catch up. So he knows both sides of these things. This juxtaposition is Paul's way of stating that he's personally experienced this in his life. And this is our Christian walk. And I don't mean just monetarily. This is our Christian walk when we talk about our spiritual life. We know what it's like to be very close to God. We know what it's like to feel like he's not there. We know what it's like to be happy. We know what it's like to be completely unhappy. We know what it's like to be mentally sane at some points in our life. And we know what it's like sometimes to feel like life is coming off the rails, if you will. And I know if you're a young couple, kiddos on the way, I know if it's like for Carol and I, we know what it's like now to have money and we know what it's like to be pretty poor and not know if we can pay the bills or have to shuffle through the bills to figure out which ones are most important. Now, I'm not saying we were in abject poverty, but we know the stress of, right? I'll never compare ourselves to other places in the world. But understanding these juxtapositions in our life is very important because it correlates to this verse specifically. You want to get into that. So you can imagine here, Paul was a Pharisee. He worked for the Jewish court. He would have not needed for anything. But since he's been saved, he's been repeatedly beaten, repeatedly thrown in prison. 
And he clearly knows both sides of the tracks, if you will, right? When Paul says he can do all things, he's not talking about conquering some sort of dreamed up obstacle in your life. Like I'm going to, I can see that goal in my future and I'm going to make my million dollars. That's not what Paul's talking about. I can do all things through Christ that strengthens me. It's not I, that, that brand new SUV, we can, we can do it. We can get that with the power of positive persuasion. That's not what Paul's talking about here. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He's not referring to the race that you're going to run or attaining some sort of goal that you have developed for yourself. Doing all things, right? You see, this verse has been used to pump up the church in so many ways over the years. They pump up the church to make people believe that God's a genie. Rub the genie, rub the bottle, poof, God comes out and gives you what you want. He gives you the tea time you need, whatever that might be, because God is not your genie in a bottle. He will respond with your successes and life's trials, toils, and challenges, though, because he's faithful, but he does it through his grace and his movement in your spirit, his sanctification, and then eventually his glorification when you pass into heaven. But the reality behind Paul's statement here is the realization of Paul's ability to be content in every circumstance. Paul has been in every circumstance and he's like, I can do all things. For Christ that strengthens me, the translation might be understood a little better if you were to rearrange the words as, all things I have strength in the one who strengthens me. All things I have strength in the one who strengthens me. So, you know, if you read it in Greek, you know, the words are all in a weird order, so it doesn't sound right. But think about the words when you put them that way. All things I have strength in the one who strengthens me. What does this give us the ability to do? It doesn't read really well, but if you consider it, in the midst of Paul's situation, in that context, it kind of makes better sense out of order. And I think what it is, is it makes us consider where are you in your life today? Where are you right now? Are you living a life of prosperity? In some ways, probably, right? The air conditioning's on, the fans work, the coffee is fair. We have a little bit of prosperity going on right now. Everybody's mostly comfortable and safe. Are you at a spot where you're able to rejoice in the Lord regularly? Do you have that mindset, that heart set where you're able to rejoice in the Lord regularly and what he's doing in your life, in your spouse's life, in the life of your kids, in the people that are around you? Are you anxious about anything? Remember we studied last week, don't be anxious in anything, but do you have anxiety in your life? Are there things that you just can't get yourself around, your head around? Are you giving thanks and living a good prayer life? Are these the things that you are doing? Do you spend your time in the Word of God daily, regularly, often, intentionally? Are you living a life worthy of the call? I think that's an important question that we should all ask ourselves. I know for me this has been a very difficult part of my life is that regularly answering myself or questioning myself. Are you living a life worthy? Are you living a life worthy of the call? We come up short. Are you straining for the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus, which we talked about two weeks ago? Straining for the goal, right? This is this desire, this desire to be a good, faithful Christian. See, this is the context of the letter that Paul writes there. 
we consider this famous verse, we have to use the context of the previous verses and put them together and see what we come up with. And this is specifically what Paul's been teaching us. It's the culmination of all the previous teaching is doing all things through Christ who strengthens me. And this is why I'm kind of saying it repetitively here because I want you to hear me. I just got to, I want you to hear it out loud. God has you right where he needs you. God has you right where he wants you, just like he had Paul right where he wanted him. Whether he was abounding or whether he was in prison, he was where God wanted him. I'm sure that when he was in prison, he wasn't where Paul wanted him. Paul did not want to get whipped half to death. I'm assuming. I never met Paul, but I've never met a man who wanted that for themselves. Do you know that God has you right where he needs you? Do you know that you are where God wants you? And it doesn't really matter if you can't figure it out or not because it's God's plan, right? Because you have those days where you're like, I can't, I don't understand. I don't understand why the finances aren't right. I don't understand why my spouse and I aren't getting along. We are faithful through it all because we know that he has a plan and we are part of it and he is faithful through it. But he has you where he wants you. So I think the goal here is to strive towards the prize today. We strive forward towards the prize starting today. When you leave, today is the day that the things in your life that you're having the trouble with, we fix through our prayer, our supplication, and our love. And how do we do that? Love your family sacrificially today. Today is the day you start loving your family sacrificially. If you feel like that's the thing that you need to work on, then you do that today. You change the way you're living your life today. If there are things in your life that need to be adjusted, you fix them today. You say to yourself, this is the thing I'm not doing right. And you make a conscious effort to change that. If you're not reading your Bible every day, if you're not in a specific study where you're hearing from God, the Theonoustos, he's pouring the word of God over you and you're washing yourself with it every day, today's the day you start doing that. You leave here at some point today, you set time aside and you read from the word of God. I can't stress it enough. What, this is the question. You want to hear from God? Read the word of God. You want to hear it out loud? Read it out loud. It's very simple steps, right? Fix your prayer life. Fix your prayer life. Pray. Pray for your spouse. Pray for your kids. Pray for your family. Pray for your friends. You have to go to God with supplication and prayer and everything. And then the, kind of the last part of this is, because we're witnesses to his, is you tell somebody about your hope. You tell somebody, because we talked about this last week, people are going to come to you because you're different. Right? They're going to see that you're different. Why are you different? Because my marriage has lasted, although the marriages around me fell apart years ago. Why? People, why? How do you and your wife, why do you stick together? It's not because we don't have problems. It's not because we don't have days where we hate each other's guts. It's because of Jesus. That's how we do things. We rely on him. We lean on him. We tell someone about the hope that's in us. We tell somebody about Jesus Christ. This is your contentment that Paul is talking about. This is doing all things through Christ who strengthens you. This is your contentment. Working for Christ right here, right now. It doesn't matter if you're abounding or if you're needy. You are joyful in his promise. And you exemplify that through your prayer life, your prayer walk, your striving. 
there's a perspective to partnership that needs to be exposited here a little bit. We're going to talk about that, right? Because Paul's going to go on to exhort the Philippian church for these monetary gifts. And I want to drill down on it a little bit. And he calls it partnership. And he actually reveals to them that they were the only ones who partnered with them when they supported his mission when he left Macedonia. So the Philippians have been honoring him for a while. They honored him Thessalonica when he left Macedonia, and now they're honoring him in Rome while he's in prison, right? So there's this perspective that we need to talk about when it comes to partnership. It needs to be exposited from the text. Paul does not want their money, nor does he need their money. That's not what he's talking about here. He's not like, I need your money, you need to send it to me, which is an interesting perspective, right? There are people who stand at pulpits in megachurches who fly private planes, who have 18,000 people in their seats, smiling Joe Osteen and whoever that creep is down in um, Charlotte, uh, whatever his name is, Stephen Furtick, who's worth like 45 and a half million dollars and wears $3,000 sneakers on the stage. Yeah, yeah, a pastor, right? He's not expositing any text. But he doesn't want or need their money. He knows it is God that provides for them. And it's, there's good evidence that Paul didn't even ask for their monetary support as well, right? So even when he was in Macedonia, when we look at Acts 18, it records that Paul was building tents. And why does Paul make a point of saying that he was building tents? Right? He's with Aquila and Priscilla. I don't know if you've ever heard this story before, but he's with Aquila, Aquila and Priscilla, and he's building tents. He talks about this in Corinthians. They were all tent makers. And in 1 Corinthians 16, it records his work there. But in 1 Thessalonians 3, it really gives some insight into Paul's thoughts on money. And I'm going to read this to you, Thessalonians 3, 6-8. It says, Now we command you, brothers, in the, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. <laughs> the perspective of the money here is Paul doesn't need your money or want your money. He will work for it if he needs it. If Paul's hungry, he'll go to work and make money and buy himself bread. He won't go take yours so that you're hungry. So this idea that, you know, somebody will sit at the head of a multi-million dollar church and be like, stretch yourself, give more, when they are living in abundance is absolute sinfulness. We should be giving our money. Money is one of the hardest things to give away and share. And we've proven in this group already that we've done a, a couple of small projects and people are just willing to support. I think we've proven already that when the need arises, we've, we've had people move on, we've taken collections for them. The people here have been very gracious and I'm super happy for that because we've proven the, what Paul is talking about here, that we give of ourselves when we need to. We are not buying a plane. It's not where we're going with this. He didn't want to burden anyone. Any gifts given to him would have to be from people's heart, not from this idea that you have to give, but you want to give, right? Not from necessity. 
He does not say that the gift from them was a blessing to him, which is interesting, right? He doesn't say that the blessing was to him. He does admit, though, that he was well supplied, but he says that their offering is a fragrant offering and a sacrifice acceptable to God. That's the important part here. The gift is for God. And this should be our goal with our money, right? And as a hard subject as it is to cover in church and the people that are taking advantage of it, trying to get people to believe that they owe their money to the church in order to be blessed instead of we give from our heart because we want to bless whatever movement is happening in the church. And Acts gives this. People come together regularly and they make sure that nobody is poor or starving. That's what they do. Okay? It's typically one of the hardest things for people to part with, and Paul already knows this. So the lesson is being a cheerful giver, realizing a need, is an offering to God first, not to the church, to God. And those offerings are paid back to God according to the riches in glory in Christ Jesus, which is an interesting twist here. God pays you back for the money that you give. There is no such thing as planting a seed that is going to grow and make you a millionaire here. There's no such thing in the entire word of God that says anything about you plant a seed and your bank account will grow. It's one of the biggest lies in the prosperity gospel today. It is a lie and it is not in there. I do believe God will care for your needs and you shouldn't worry about your needs. And there are going to be times when you're stretched. That's okay. There's no evidence that he'll expand your bank account. Even if you give all your money to the church, it won't happen. Right? There's a great debate over whether or not tithing is a command. I want to talk about it just for a second for the church. The Hebrew word that's used for tithe is asar. And it literally means, somebody in here already knows it, the word tithe means one-tenth. It means one-tenth. To give up one-tenth. Asar, right? And the first time we ever see it in the Bible is actually in Genesis 14. Right? So in Genesis 14, Abraham goes to see Melchizedek. And he gives to Melchizedek as an honor one-tenth of what he has. Well, Melchizedek didn't have a bunch of American greenbacks, so he gave them one-tenth of what he had with that caravan with him. So it would have been food, it would have been grain offerings, and it would have been out of his abundance, right? And there's no, there is some evidence of other ancient Near East cultures doing this as a practice. They would have given a tenth of what they had as an honor to whoever let them stay with them, or if there was some sort of uh, marriage, or if there's some honor for a priest, they would have given a tenth of themselves. So in the ancient Near East, as a sign of worship and respect, it would have been a voluntary act, and they would have given a tenth away. And then by the time that God gives the law to Moses, we're going to see it come back again, right? And we see the tithe become a part of Jewish culture, which if you've ever done a study through Deuteronomy, you'll see... Um, the tithe become a part of how Jews live their life as honoring God and separate themselves from the pagans that live around them. So in Deuteronomy, it wasn't just money though. And that's the thing where in some places you'll hear a pastor or a preacher be like, you owe a tithe, you owe a tenth. And it's like, well, you need to go back and look in Deuteronomy because I don't raise any sheep, I don't have any goats, and I don't raise any grain. And I don't have enough property for you to take a tenth of, because if you take a tenth of that, you're not going to have very much. You couldn't even put a shed on it. So what does it look like? Oh, and that includes wine, oil, and some other things that you have. So um, 
This is taking something that may have been familiar to Israel as a practice and making it an absolute for them. So the tithe is very specific to Israel and how they became the holy people, how he separated them from the cultures around them. But there really is no evidence of 10% offering being necessary for modern believers. There's zero, none, none. And I will argue it with anyone who wants to sit in front of me. I've heard it from pastors before. I will sit, we will open Deuteronomy. We will, we will open in Matthew where Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law, not one jot, not one tittle. We'll discuss what the word law means. And we will get into that. It is not a thing for believers to give a tenth in the modern church. We see some evidence of Paul revealing that giving should be in according to your heart. You give in according to your heart's desire in 2 Corinthians 9, 6, and 8. And it says this, Paul says this, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as if he decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every work. And what Paul is talking about here is the riches and glory in Christ Jesus that Paul is talking about is salvation. He's talking about being saved. He's not talking about your bank account being full. He is talking about your salvation. So as Jesus tells us in Matthew 6, we should be laying up our treasures where? In heaven. That's where we lay our treasures up. If you want to plant a seed and make your bank account bigger, your bank account is growing in heaven. It is not growing here. Not that God doesn't care that you have money in the bank, but it's not the point. It's not the point. I mean, God, Jesus talks about money quite often in the New Testament, and it's, he talks about it more as a burden than anything else, right? It is more of a burden. Um, and what we do try to lay up here, what does he say about it? He says it gets destroyed by moths and rust and it gets stolen by thieves. So this doesn't mean that uh, we shouldn't earn money. We shouldn't strive to make more money. I think when you do earn more money, you can share more money. When you have more money, you can give more money. You can bless people with your money. And we, sh we should be ready to give freely of our wallets. Even sometimes it will hurt a little bit. But the evidence of the word of God seems quite simple to me. The poor need our resources and we should give cheerfully to those in need. In this case, specifically, the church leadership has helped to make the decision for where the money should go. So the church at Philippi has said, we're going to go help Paul. The leadership goes to the church and they get together and they say, we're taking up a collection for Paul. And they give of their abundance or even little. They might have given a penny. They might have given a hundred bucks and they bring it to Paul because they love him discernment for where your money goes is very important as well as Paul looks into this. They knew where their money was going. It wasn't frivolous. It wasn't we're just giving money into some weird church fund where they're building a multi-million dollar building and the pastors are driving expensive cars and wearing expensive shoes. What they knew was exactly where their money was going. But they're giving cheerfully and with discerning prayer. And as a footnote, just so it needs to be said, Jesus and Paul, they were not socialists. Right? The money wasn't collected as part of a socialist program. Believers gain nothing by giving to a government program that decides who needs the money for them. That's not a cheerful giver. That's an uninformed giver. 
these are believers who came together to give willfully and cheerfully and carefully to those who are in need. And it was not done as a sacrifice because of the grace of God. It was given as a sacrifice for a response to the grace of Jesus Christ and as a means of worship. Paul ends, as we start to end this chapter here, with what is called a doxology. I'm going to talk about that for a second and we'll close. Or a praise, right? It's the final touch, if you will, on his letter about joy. And undoubtedly there'll be believers passing through and visiting Paul and greeting him and spending time with him. So... We should greet and love brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. It should encourage us to meet other believers and we should extend ourselves to them. As believers, we should love on each other. And he tells them that the believers who were in Rome, who were around him, spending time with him, had spoken to him about Philippi and they were sending this good news to them. He had shared his story with the people at Philippi, with the people in Rome, and the people in Rome were saying, send our best to them. So they send their greeting, even those who were fully Roman citizens and were part of the house of Nero, right? And finally sends them with a blessing of grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how he sends his letter. So let's close with this. We're going to close Philippi, and we're going to talk about this. This letter should have reinforced some things in us. It should have reinforced our joy. It's an amazing letter about a faithful church, a church sharing the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, a church careful about its theology, as we should be here, a church careful about false teachers teaching there, a church who lived in a world that was against them, but yet they were faithful in their walk through, and it thrived in its love for one another. And we can learn a lot from this church and from his letter about joy. So I think this is what we learn. We learn to love one another sacrificially. We, love, we learn to love one another heartily. We learn to love one another without fear. And we find our joy in God's truth. We raise our kids to create a legacy of faithfulness. Always. And we perpetuate that joy that the Holy Spirit fills us through our love for one another. And the goal here, I think, is to encourage one another like Paul is encouraging them as he closes this, that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let's pray. Father God, we are thankful. We are thankful for this amazing letter that you have given to us. We are thankful that you have given us the opportunity to spend time in it with one another, learning. Learning what it means to be joyful in you, Lord. Learning what it means to have the joy of the Lord in our hearts. Learning the difference between happiness and joy. Learning that we should be joyful even in adversity, adverse times in our lives. That, Lord, today you have us right where you want us. Today you have us right where you need us to minister to somebody. To minister maybe even to someone in our home or maybe someone at work. But you have us right where you need us, Lord. We are thankful for you. We're thankful for you in that and I ask that you encourage us in it. We're thankful for new friends who came to spend time with us this morning and ask that you would continue to richly bless them. 
And we are thankful for your son, Jesus, who died on the cross for our sins. And we ask for our blessings in his holy name. Amen.